Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I was thinking about uh, Pastor Scott's announcement about uh, the candlelight service and the soup and the bread. I feel like I want to talk about that for a while just to get our stomachs ready for lunch. Doesn't that just sound so good? I, I mean, I'm loving that it's like 150 degrees in, in December, and I'm hoping that as we turn toward, it looks like the weather's going to get a little chillier uh, for the chili, but um, I just feel like warm soup and, and fresh bread after a candlelight service. Like, what could get better than that, guys? I mean, come on. So I hope you're all able to come out. And I think that bread announcement was targeted towards Bill Jackson and Bev Davis, uh, some of the, the best bread bakers in the world. And, and, uh, and don't let them be the only ones, guys. I mean, some of us need to rise up and compete here because they're really, really good. And, and some of you are thinking, I'm good. Yes, you are good. Prove that you're better than them by, by bringing your bread. So anyways, we'll be good if you don't, but um, there's the opportunity there for a little healthy, godly competition. Um, this morning, before I, I get into the message, I, I did want to say also that you might remember a few weeks back, we had a guest speaker, Trent Shepard, good friend of mine who spoke on um, the humanity of Jesus. Do you, do you remember that? Um, Trent wrote a book called The Jesus Journey. Some of you have read it. He, is, he, he had it here before. And, um, and we, got, we got a box of them, and we thought that it would be nice for us to make available to you for 10 bucks. Um, so if you want to buy them for yourself or maybe as a Christmas present, there is a, it's a good book. It, it kind of takes you through in a devotional way, um, looking at Jesus through some new lenses. And I talked to several of you after he spoke, and it was kind of like, wow, I'd never, never seen it that way before. I never thought of it that way. And so the book kind of unpacks that a little bit more. So those are available in the lobby. It's kind of on the honor system. Um, if anyone steals from a church, you know, uh, I'm just kidding. No, I'm joking. No, so go ahead. Take a book. If you, can't, if, if you can't afford it right now or you didn't come prepared, write a little IOU. And if you really are like, man, I really want it, but I don't have 10 bucks, just talk to me. We'll get you the book. But they're out there. There's like 50 copies of them. First come, first serve. And um, so I want to make that known. And so, yeah, so let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 7. I got to say, um, I so enjoyed last week and having Haley um, just share her heart. Did you guys not enjoy the perspective that she brought? Thank you so much, Haley. It was awesome. And, um, and I began to open up John chapter 7. I, if I had it to do all over again, I would have just like handed the microphone to Haley, to be quite honest with you. But, um, but uh, anyways, I, I began to open up John chapter 7. I want to get right back there to, to chapter 7, verse 1, and kind of pick up where I left off and, and get through some of that um, as well. Uh, one, one more announcement from me, sorry, before we get into John. I just saw my notes. I want to make sure that you all knew that uh, coming up, on December the 30th at 10 a.m. is going to be Jack's Celebration of Life Service. And, and we're going to celebrate Jack well. Um, Jack lived such a, a, a wonderful life here in this community, and he impacted so many of us. And so this is an opportunity to glorify God and to tell his story a little bit more. So if you're available for that, I know Bev would love to have your support, and anyone and everybody is, is welcome. There'll be a little reception after, so that's um, coming up uh, December the 30th at 10 a.m. All right. What I'd like to do is, is read um, John chapter 7, 1 through 24. And the reason that I do that is because I like to read God's word out loud and publicly. I like that because scripture tells us to do it. And also it's like a, it's a kind of a safeguard for me that, like I said, I, I think I told this um, to Michelle this week when we were talking. That even if my preaching stinks, at least you got a lot of scripture, right? <laughs> 
So this is, this, there's two, two reasons. But first and foremost, it gives us the whole context, right? It gives us um, these, these 24 verses that I'm going to read to you, um, picks us up in a story. And I think that what, what we're trying to do each Sunday is not just give you like a highlight verse to think about, but to, to open up God's word, right? To help us see the big story of the Bible and the big story of this gospel of John and what, what is happening here um, as Jesus is making his journey through this world, right? And, um, and so chapter 7, it, it lands us at the Feast of Booths. And I, I talked to you just a brief bit about that last Sunday. And the reason that I think it's important to think about the Feast of Booths is it was like a big deal, kind of like Christmas is, right? And with, with that, and, and I don't mean like when I say a big deal like Christmas, like obviously the birth of Christ is a huge deal, right? And I'm separating a little bit here the birth of Christ and what we know is our celebration of Christmas. I love that, um, that we have the Christmas traditions that we have, but, but aside from sometimes we, we might miss what's happening with the birth of our Savior and we focus a whole lot on like, ooh, you know, I got to get this for that and the things that we have to do, the busyness of the season, are you with me? There's always a significance and with the Feast of Booths, there was a huge significance, but there was also the stuff that came with it. And like we said last week, whenever you're trying to get a lot of people together to do one thing, it's just hard, right? It's difficult to get everybody to fall into line the way that you expect them to. And it's, it, it brings up stuff. And so certainly, I don't think it's far out of the realm of imagination to think that there was like stuff happening during the Feast of Booths. Like, you got to shut down stuff going on at home. You got to pack up. You got to get the whole tribe together. You got to make your way up to Jerusalem. You're going to see people. There's a lot going on. And it's in that context that you see Jesus has an interaction with his own earthly brothers. And when I say earthly brothers, um, sometimes, like, like we'd said before, you know, we'd be like, hey, what's up, brother? Like, that's what we do in church when we forget the person's name, because we're all like one brother and, and, and sister in Christ. But these were his, his brothers raised in the same household. I think theologically we would call them his, their, his half-brothers because we know that Jesus' father was God. But these are Joseph and Mary's kids, Mary's, Joseph and Mary's boys. And we know that in this first conflict that they have or this, these first words that are had, you can get the sense of fa- family dynamic a little bit. And then onward as we read, not only is it uh, Jesus having an interaction with his earthly brothers, but then it's with the crowd, right? And there's a, there, it differentiates in this passage. If you're not looking for it, you might miss it. You have the crowd, and then in the ESV, what's termed as the Jews, right? And it says the crowd and the Jews. And you can look, and you can go, is that every Jewish person, and is, who's the crowd? Well, if you look at the, the understanding of it, it's more than likely when it's referring to, in, in our text, the Jews, it's referring to religious leadership, It'll introduce a little later in the chapter for the first time in John, the Pharisees. But we're talking about religious leaders and we're talking about the crowd of people. This is the everyday person like you and I. Are you still with me? Okay, so just giving you that a little bit as I read it. You have that context a little. And here we go. It says this in John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go up about, excuse me, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. 
Your time will, is, is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, and I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10 says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, remember, you always go up to Jerusalem. Wherever you are, you're ascending to the place of worship. i just throwing that in for free. And so, so um, after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And verse 12 says, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews um, therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning and he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it is he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether, I'm my teach, or whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Verse 18 says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, sent him, excuse me, is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and all of you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man's body, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Amen. So this is where we find ourselves in the in the whole of the story. And I've already, I think, covered fairly well, I, I hope, the, the beginning of the idea of the Feast of Booths. And then as it gets into Jesus' communication um, with his own brothers, um, jump down to, to verse 3, and you'll see it there once again. It says, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe him. I think that's a, a, a point to re revisit from last week and to camp out just for a moment in. Because if, you, if you're honest with yourself and, and, well, that's not a great thing to say because you lie to yourself all the time. No, but if, if, we, if we just take a moment and look at things at, at face value... Um, sometimes it's most difficult among the people who know us the closest to, to express um, things that are going on in our heart or to, um, to, I don't know, like talk about the things of the Lord. Not always, but many times it, it can be difficult. And here we have an example of maybe why. 
Right? Here, here Jesus' brothers, they know him. They, they, they've watched him grow up. And, and, and they're, they're calling him out. We see that older brother dynamic or that younger brother dynamic or just brother dynamic in general. And what, what, what we find in it um, is Jesus' response is, is, is different than I would maybe have expected Especially having a brother, and those of you that have brothers, you know, maybe you would just expect it being a little more bantery back and forth, but he takes a different route. But I think the line that, that gripped my heart a little bit and maybe grips your heart as you think of your relationship with, with loved ones that, that maybe don't know Jesus is that it said, for even his brothers didn't believe him. It's a powerful statement. And I think that as we like come into to Christmas season and as we come into these times where we're going to be around people, oftentimes we're, we're confronted with the reality that some of the people that we love the most can't see the Jesus in us and they can't see who he is. And, and we want so desperately for, him to, for them to do that. I, I, uh, when I first came to know the Lord, it was in my high school years, and I remember I would listen to Keith Green music a lot, and I would read a lot about Keith Green, and I loved his biography, and one of the things that it, it, it spoke of in his biography is that, man, he was just slamming his parents with the gospel, just like taking the biggest Bible in the world and figuratively just like, and if you know anything about Keith Green, kind of a, a prophetic temperament to say the least, right? Just going to let you have it. And, and then uh, the Holy Spirit began to convict him, and he wrote this beautiful song, and it was kind of apologizing to his parents for the way that, that he was trying so desperately to force them into salvation. And, 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 and then the song is only can happen in, in Keith Green music, and I think it's an acquired taste, because a, a, when I was a youth pastor, I just thought it was like the most moving music ever, and I remember being in the car with a bunch of the youth, and I put it on, I put the cassette in, or maybe the CD, and, um, and I remember playing it going, man, isn't this awesome? And it was like his piano music, and they're like, dude, you're old. Like, this is, and I'm like, no, it's retro for me man but anyways in the feeling of the music what he expresses is like look I just like saying something to the effect of I know I was being a jerk here but I only want to see you there I only want to see you there like I want to see you in heaven that's why all this passion is coming out and so he describes it that way and and I think that um yeah, I think that we can, we can relate to that, that hard attitude. And, and, and what, what's beautiful about the Bible is that as we see the big picture of it, we see in this moment his brothers did not believe. But then we turn to a, a, a passage that we could easily just skip over. But if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and I hope that this is some hope for you. If something changes from the time that Jesus walked the earth to the time that he died and resurrected in the way that the relationship with he and his brothers was. Because now in, in Acts chapter 1 and 14 it says, All of these were in one accord, devoting themselves to, to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who else? Now, that wasn't like his brothers, like, hi brother, like I said before. That was his brothers, written in the line with their mother together so that we would know for sure. 
And, and here's hope for you. Maybe you've taken, um, maybe you've taken the large Bible route at beating your loved ones over with the gospel because you only want to see them there. Maybe you've taken the opposite route of like, I don't even know how to broach the subject because I think they're going to be mad at me if I say anything. I've been ostracized already because of my faith. I don't want to mess it up. I don't know whichever extreme that you land there. I would say as you, you approach family this year, approach them with the hope that as you continue to live out your Christian life, as you continue to glorify the Father, as you continue to get more and more healthy in this world and flourish according to what the kingdom's desire is for you, I believe God will open some doors for you and that your story won't end with, man, nobody wants to follow Jesus, but your story will end with Acts chapter 1, 14, that there's the whole family and they're all believing. Amen? And so maybe some of you want to just jot down Acts 1.14 as, as some fuel for prayer. For those that, that are adversarial towards the gospel, those that are indifferent towards the gospel, or those that, that you know, are just somewhere in, in between, that the Lord would, would reach their hearts. And what a wonderful time Christmas is for that. It, it goes on in, in, um, in verse 6. It says, Jesus said to them, and this is his response. His response isn't like, um, man, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I just don't even know why I start to say certain sentences. And there's like a stop sign that appears in my mind. It's just, just stop that sentence. And I'm obeying that one. So, so John, six, uh, Sean, John 7 verse 6 says um, that Jesus' response is, hey, my time has not yet come. Basically, their thing is like, dude, if you're so awesome, if everybody's following you, why are you hiding out? Come with us and show off to everybody so they see who you are so you can get more disciples if you're that cool. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. He then reflects back to the Father. And he says, my time has not yet come, but, my t- but, but your time is always here. He says, the world, the, the world doesn't hate you. hates me because I'm, I'm proclaiming truth. And as we jump down into application, this is what highlighted for me as I read it. I read this idea of my time. And I had to get, I, I have to be honest with you, it, it came to me as a conviction. Whose time are you on? Whose time am I on? Mine is kind of a dangerous word, isn't it? Isn't it one of the, um, the first words that like toddlers learn? And is it generally a positive? It kind of has like a twinge to it. It's like, it's, it's not like mine. It's like, mine. <laughs> and and it, regardless of accent, it comes out that way. It has like a, mine. Because it usually is accompanied by some sort of reach. Like, mine. And we laugh because we, we say, well, that's only toddlers that do that. Mmm. <laughs> Grown-ups do it too. We do it over um, things that we value, things that, that others, we, we feel threatened by, ideas or stuff or whatever else. And maybe we're not saying it with the same tone, but we're saying it. And t- what could be more precious than time, right? Don't we always say that? It's like time is so precious. And whose does it belong to? See, for Jesus, his time belonged to the Father. And he said, my time has not come, uh, that, that I'm taking my, my clock, my directions come from the Father. They, they don't come from your taunts or your challenges. And so for me, when I looked at this, I had, to, I had to really do some work with the Lord on this because I realized that I was getting a little bit mine about my time. 
I think there are a few categories when it comes to the stuff we value, especially time. There's our time, there's others, there's the enemy, and there's God's. Yours is the, the all, and now that's not to say that you don't have stewardship over your time. Jesus was modeling that. He was saying, my time has not yet come because I have to make decisions that are in alignment with the Father. I don't have to, but I've chosen to be fully submitted to the Father, a, a word that this world struggles with. Things like authority, submission. The other choices in those moments would be to submit to the ideas of others, right? And that is a slippery slope, isn't it? The, the, the I want you here, I need you here, you got to be here. You have the spoken expectations, the unspoken expectations, job requirements, and that's why we feel like this all the time. Because we're answering to others over our time. And there's some of that that's polite. There's some of it that's appropriate. Like you can't take this sermon and go, hey, our our pastor said that our time belongs to God, so I'm not going to show up to work. And, um, you know, I I don't answer to you. I answer to the Father. I think that we're all mature enough to be able to apply this to our lives in a way that's appropriate. We're stewards over our time. What I'm trying to say is that it's difficult for those that are bent towards wanting to please everybody right? To not feel completely, completely stretched out in these moments that we're in, these holiday seasons, Christmas time. And so we have to, to recalibrate and say, am I getting my instructions from the Lord? And so that we have, we have uh, our needs, I got to take care of me. We got what others expect of us. And then always in the middle of that, you know, you have the enemy of your soul who wants to just take your time and waste it, Right? in an inappropriate way. And I think that we, we know how to discern that. I think that we, if we're honest, we can, we can get before the Lord and submit to him just like Jesus did and said, God, show me how I'm meant to spend my time. Like, help me. And then we have, of course, God's. And being tuned into the leading of the Holy Spirit and, and making our decisions and taking our directions from God. Thank you so much, honey. My wife just took my jacket away from the clock, so now we will all get out of here somewhere near on time. Thank you. It's wonderful to be married for a long time because I just look in that direction. She could see the panic on my face, and she's like, I've got you. Yes. Thank you. Ah. So, so I, 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 I'll leave that there for a second. I think we'll revisit it as we wrap up our time. But, but I think there's some application for you. If you're looking for how does the word of God make sense to me in this moment, I think that there's something for us there. At least I can say there was for me. So if this is anything, it's a confession. But maybe for you, it's an application. Secondly, we look at the, this, this dynamic between the leaders and the crowd. It says in verse 11, the Jews, speaking of the religious leader, were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And then there's this word in verse 12. It says, there was much muttering about him among the people. Um, Some saying he's a good man. Others saying, no, he's leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the religious climate, everybody's like, ooh, I don't know that we're allowed to talk. So it was a lot of loud whispering. How many of you know that everybody can hear you when you whisper? So there's a lot of going on. I had a thought about that too. Like just some application. The, the, the first thought was this. How many of you have ever been talked about before? Isn't that hard? 
you know it. You know that there's something going on, a rumor that's flown around, an environment. Maybe it's at work. You know, you walk up to a certain area in work and everyone's like, blah, 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 blah. when you walk up, you can feel it. You know, and, and, and they don't know how to continue on because there's something there. You, you can sort of feel it or you hear word of it and somebody tells you like in a story what somebody said about you. You're like, and then you're processing it later, and you go, that means they were talking about me. That's the worst, huh? Jesus understands that. Jesus understands that. And I think that Jesus has a response to it that, that we'll see here in a moment as we read on, that Jesus' response to it is, is much different than what our responses are. At least I can speak for myself that in my flesh, if I know somebody's talking about me, I entertain the argument back. I entertain in my mind, in my flesh, the way of, of righting any of those wrongs. Or have you ever had like a really good argument, but the person's not even there and you're winning the argument and you just know, and you're like, nah, I'm going to say this and they're going to say that and I say this. And it never goes that way because then when you actually have a chance to talk, you're like, Bleh. You see the dynamics of what the enemy tries to do in relationships and then how he gets involved in our minds and then make, messes everything up. And so... So the thought is this, and, I, and maybe stay tuned, because in just a moment you're going to see that Jesus responds to this stuff by, by glorifying God and living out his life in obedience to God. That's what he allows the response to be. It's not defensiveness. It's not having to win the argument. It's being right before God and bringing God glory in this moment. But then I have to say, even as I read it more, I thought, isn't that just typical of at least me and maybe all of us, that when we read the Bible, we often read ourselves into the Jesus thing and the Jesus response. We read ourselves into... Man, I don't like it when people talk about me when I'm doing righteous things. But how often do we take pause and go, am I the crowd? Like how often do I, I love this word in the English language, mutter. How often do I mutter, right? Muttering, at least here, is like, expressing these half-truths or ex expressing like verbally processing about a controversial issue and just leaving it like little blips, blips, blips. And in our, in our cultural moment, in our world, man, there is a lot of that. Because we haven't fully processed through certain changes that happen in morality, stuff that's happening in our schools, stuff that's happening, you know, whatever the latest news cycle is. And so we begin to, instead of dialoguing in a healthy way, we mutter. We mutter, we mutter a little bit about who's got it right and who's got it wrong and which religious leader we're going to follow based on how they responded to such a thing. Does anybody else see this? Or am I just being a commentator at the moment? And I had to ask myself, am I muttering? Man, um, there's a proverb. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. And in the NIV, it says it so well. It speaks to muttering. And I think you can associate muttering with gossip. Gossip is, is not just like... Um, hey, did you see what she was wearing? Oh my gosh. Like, gossip isn't just the petty things. Gossip is this unhealthy dialogue that grows within itself of speaking partial truths, half-truths, and doing it in such an emotional way that the Bible says in another verse that it's like the spreading of gangrene because as it's happening, it's like, what? This is tasty. In, in Proverbs, it says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into the inmost parts. And man, there's a lot of opportunity for some choice morsels in this next season. 
right? As you see that person or you look at that person and you say, oh, I, man, they're really aging horribly, you know, or wow, they put on a few pounds or oh, his hairline, you know, like there's those opportunities. There's the opportunities um, you can find within any organization. The Bible is so um, clear about protecting unity, because it does something to the climate. Have you ever been, I know you have, but, but like walking into any environment where there's a lot of muttering, you can feel it in the atmosphere. And I don't, I don't mean it in like some, um, like spirit, it is spiritual, but, but you can literally feel something different when you go into a disunified gossipy environment and when you go into a healthy one. Doesn't matter if it's a, a church, a school, a place of business. I can remember, someone's phone's ringing. I can remember, um, <laughs> I, can, I can remember a, a season for us in, in, a, in, in my, our kids' school. And I can remember that there was a lot of things that were going on. And we're just like parents. We, and, but, but there we could like, you, you come across classrooms. There's like, can you feel the muttering? You go into the, cl- the office, you could feel the muttering. And just setting foot on the campus, it was like, this is an environment that doesn't feel like, ah, this feels like, Disunification. This feels like the choice morsels are being well digested. People are just taking it in. I don't want to belabor the point, but I, I, I want to say it was a point of conviction for me that I want to be close to the Lord. I want to be quick to discern whether it's over cultural issues. I don't want to shut the conversation down. I want to have a productive one. I don't want to be like, no, it's okay. We want to open our eyes wide and be able to talk about the things that are happening, but not in a muttering kind of way, not in a keeping score kind of way, but in a way where we're discerning the Holy Spirit. God, help us to see how we respond to this latest craziness. And I think that's the Lord would honor that. So we get on because Jesus is not even, I mean, it's the being talked about, being confronted by his brothers. And then now he shows up, right? And this is how we begin to see some of his responses. I love in, in John 14, it helps me connect the dots because I got stuck in a loop when it said that Jesus told his brothers he wasn't going to go to the feast. And then now Jesus is at the feast, right? I just got stuck in a How did he say he wasn't going to do it? But then he's going to do it. And then the aha comes where it's like, I'm not doing it on your terms. Do you, are, you, are you tracking with me? Or is this the point in the sermon where everybody just shut off? I don't know. Um, he, he had told his brothers, my, I'm not going, and my time hasn't yet come. And then he shows up. And I think the, the response there was like, I'm not responding to your time. I'm responding to the Father's time somewhere. And I'm grateful for this passage because it says he's now halfway through. It's the middle of the feast. Jesus shows up. It says that he, he shows up low profile. Like he's not, he's not with his entourage or anything like that. He's checking everything out. He's seeing what's going on. And then he goes, I think I said synagogue last week, but I intended to say temple. He goes to the temple area. And in the temple area, he begins to teach. And I believe that these teachings and the believe that the things he was saying were his response to the insults that his brothers gave, the response to the muttering, it was like, listen to who I am, listen to my message. And so Jesus says in in verse 15, um, well, excuse me, in 14, he says, about the middle of the feast, he went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has such learning but has never studied? And then Jesus responds and says, my teaching is not mine, but it is of him who sent me. 
If anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, they will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Again, point of application, right? We see what's happening with Jesus, the perfect human, perfect, 100% human, 100% God. He says things. He responds in who he is in, in this anointing of the, uh, of the Lord, the, the Christ, the anointed one. And when he does, even his enemies are like, what do we do? Because his words are so learned, but he's never gone to training. Made me, made me think a little bit about our own lives, right? It made me think about how we look at what our uh, contributions are, how we're able to communicate um, what I'm getting at is sometimes if on the extreme we can have the perspective as followers of Christ, like, hey, let's leave all the talking up to the professionals, right? That, that model doesn't exist in the kingdom. You, you realize that, right? That, that there aren't, I don't consider myself a professional preacher. It's not my profession. It's my calling, right? And, and my calling is no greater than any calling here. This is the, the picture of the body being interdependent upon one another. And yet, in, in, does this make sense? I, I know it does. But if we, if we fall into a system that we're more, more comfortable with, like you have doctors, lawyers, preachers, policemen, you know, like these are the professionals that do Christian-related stuff. And if you talk to a pastor, make sure you don't say any bad words in front of him because that's the pastor. And, you know, like, that's not what Jesus is modeling. And this gives us a little insight into it. Jesus is modeling the fact that the words that come from our mouths, if we're submitted to him and looking to the Father, are, are, are beyond our own words. These are, these are mess. This is from God. Now, does this mean that we're, we're not to ever go to school? You know, does this mean like it's not spiritual for uh, uh, someone to go to Bible college or seminary or whatever else? Some people would take that and say, yeah, oh yeah, I'll mess you up. I think it would help us to change the terminology a little bit in, in those understandings from um, going to getting a degree or going to school to understanding what training is or discipleship is. Every single person, every follower of Christ should be investing in the, the study of God's word on their own, sitting in Bible studies, uh, growing in God's word. I think every single one of us should do that. I think for some, their calling is going to be to something formal, maybe a Bible college or a seminary. But, but the, the, the point is this. Just because you got the master's degree or the doctorate doesn't make you qualified and spiritual, right? It's helpful in discipleship and training. Jesus didn't have those, um, those letters behind his name. I mean, he was the son of God. But, but I'm saying for their context, they're like, how is it that he speaks? My message to you is you've got far more in you than I think you know. You have the Holy Spirit residing and alive in you. I marvel at times to think of ways that I would want to communicate something, and one of you will say it, and it's like, like that. That's it. So don't underestimate Christ in you. Don't underestimate the power of the Spirit in you for your family, for your place of work, for your ministry. Don't, don't believe the hierarchy of the system that says only these guys get to preach. These people don't. It limits you from the calling that God has on your life. But in all, that, in all of that, invest. 
Invest in the gift of God in you and, and, and watch that, that gift flourish and grow. And so um, the, the, I'm going to begin to wrap it up, but he says in, in verse 19, he goes through and he says, has not, Jesus begins to unpack some logic. He says, has not Moses given you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now this is the crowd, right? This is not the, the, the Jewish leadership. The crowd says, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. You notice Jesus didn't rebuke them at that moment because I think something different is happening what I think is happening is it's like it basically the everyday person is hearing this going, why are you being so dramatic? Like, like it was kind of like, who's trying to kill you? You're being paranoid right now. That's how they were responding to Jesus. And why they were responding in that way is because they didn't, there was a disconnect between their leadership and the everyday person. Their leadership was kind of on the down low trying to stop Jesus and kill him, but the everyday person didn't know it. And so when Jesus said that, it was like, what? What do you mean people are trying to kill you? The point is this. Is there sometimes a disconnect in our world today between our leadership and the everyday person? Can the Bible relate? Do you not watch any politician and just go, what planet do you live on, man? And, and, like you, you, and I know that it's such a broad generalization, especially for any of you who feel called into politics Go for it. Make changes in line with the kingdom. But, but I'm, I'm saying Jesus gets it. The Bible makes so much sense for us and, and as we see these disconnections. And so then it goes on. These different pages. And now, now Jesus is helping to bring everybody back to the same page. And what he's about to do I think is remarkable. And I hope that you can hear this. Because Jesus now, is, he, he's, he's helping us, and the Holy Spirit's helping us to see this stuff makes sense right now where we're at. And now Jesus goes in for this, like, the big hit. And he, exposed, he, he brings about a very logical point of view that shows how the culture is in direct conflict with itself. They're contradicting themselves, and they don't even know it. Does ours ever do that? Jesus says this. Jesus answers them. He says, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, even though that's not from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if, a man, if, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law may not be broken, you're angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We could read this and go, huh? But there's something there. In the law, if a, if a baby boy was born, and eight days later, on the eighth day is when a male is circumcised, if that fell on the Sabbath, what do you do? Well, of course, you obey the law, and you circumcise the child. Bit of work. Hurtful to the child, but it's a part of obeying the law. And Jesus is saying, hey, let's look at this thing with some logic here. You guys are about to try to kill me because you're, and, and what he's referencing is, um, is the miracle when he made the man whole at the pool. 
And you're, you, you, you're so upset about that because I did that miracle and I did that work on the Sabbath. And yet you will do this work on the Sabbath. So you do this and it's okay, but I make all... I mean, you, 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 you harm a child so the child will be healed. Okay, awesome. But I just straight heal the child. I mean, heal the man whole. And what I'm doing is wrong. Do you, do you get that? Do you see what's happening there? What do you think that did to the crowd? What do you think that did to people? They're like, oh, that's a good one. What do we do with that? I think like... I don't want to try to read too much into it, but for me, it really opened my eyes and it really helped me to see how much Jesus understands the confusion of our culture today. How it is in, con- like, ideas are in conflict with one another. I'm not going to just harp deeply on it because I'm, one, not prepared to do it nor qualified to do it enough to say this, that the driving philosophy of our culture today is a, is a secular humanism, right? It's a, it's a humanism that basically all the good virtues are already inside of us, right? All those good virtues. And if we just be human on our own and everybody leaves everybody else alone and just let it happen and certainly don't allow any influences to a person's ideas, um, then everything will be okay. And a part of the tenets of that philosophy is that, that there is no true morality, right? That there is, there is no absolute morality, but there is a relative morality. Meaning, if it's good for you and it makes you happy, then you should do it. That is sort of the plot line for every movie, by the way. And we can even, as Christians, like go... I mean, I'm not speaking for you, but you can like... Go, like you can get tugged along the way and you know full on what the person's doing is immoral and wrong, but you're like, yeah, they're happy. And we can hear this message over and over and over again. As long as you're living out whose truth? This is evidence that you're not with me. when you. As long as... <laughs> I'm just kidding. As long as you're living out your truth, right? Your, your truth, then it's all good. Live out your truth, speak your truth, defend your truth. Don't let anybody you know, come in conflict with your truth and be happy, right? And, and I think that that's a simplified version of, of, of what's happening, but it's one example. I was trying to think of an example. It's an example of when our culture is in conflict and contradiction with itself because what do you do when my truth isn't the same as your truth? And those two truths come and in, in, in collide. Well, guess what? That's where we're living right now, in that tension of colliding truths. And so the solution is you, you pull away and you go, God, where are you in all of this? And you look at the, the realities of the Bible. You see Jesus always going back to the absolute of the Father. He is the one who tells me what to do. He tells me how to do it. I only obey what I see the Father is doing. And it is not some kind of oppressive thing. It's a beautiful, loving relationship of a God who created everything and has all authority. And throughout the whole big story of the Bible says, hey, you want to live a good life? Here, just do this. And, and we, in response to his wonder and beauty, often say, that's cool, but that doesn't make me happy. I want to do this. And we do this. And like that famous, famous line from a U2 song I gave you everything you ever wanted. It wasn't what you wanted. 
right? I think that's our story. We often just go, I've got, I, I did it. I, I got everything to make me happy. Why am I not happy? You're like, how are you getting this from Jesus saying that? I don't know. I'm just telling you what makes me happy. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm getting this from Jesus' statement to say, you judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I'm getting this from Jesus saying, hey, let me show you where your philosophy is in direct conflict. It contradicts itself. There's a better way. There's a better way. God bless you, child. And, and, and that's, that is how I believe we want to live. And that's the message, I think, today from, from John chapter 7. I have like a recap slide, and, and I want to go through it. And maybe just in preparation, if we could have our worship team come forward, and we'll sing a song to um, process through everything. But I think there are some points, and in, in, in my heart in bringing you Scripture is, is not to like try to do it really good, but to, to do it in such a way that leaves you with something that maybe it, it confronts something in the way that you think. Maybe it, it challenges something in what you viewed, or maybe it, it even cuts you to the quick in an area like it did for me this week, where I was like, man, I got I to gotta submit this to God and make some changes. And this is that time to hopefully um, put those things together. So let's look at just these last four takeaways. It's not a whole other message. It's this in there. The first thing is that Jesus understands the emotions surrounding holiday gatherings. And I say the word holiday not to omit Christmas. I'm saying holiday in that whenever, uh, whatever the holidays are and, and all the emotions that surround it, much like it would be for the Feast of Booths, he understands that. And he understands the expectations and even the confrontations that come along with the beauty of the event. And he shows us a better way to respond. The better way that Jesus shows us to respond is to continuously, as best as possible, bring glory to the Father, to not respond in the flesh, but as best as possible to respond to the Father. I thought about that statement. I think that sounds really churchy, right? Like, yeah, man, just honor God and respond in a godly way. And then I asked myself, the question is like, I aim to do that, you aim to do that. What do we do when that doesn't happen? When we blow it, when we get defensive, what do we do? Let me give you a, a quick and easy one. Apologize. Apologize. Learn, learn the language of apology. And, and not in a trite way, not in a, 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 a um, disingenuine way, but in a way of, of saying like, oh, I blew it. Now I can fix it as best as possible by saying, hey, I really blew that and I'm sorry. Um, the, the next thing. Jesus makes his decisions based on obedience to God, not the cultural or religious expectations of the world or the moment. I say religious and cultural because in this passage we see a disconnect between religious leaders and the everyday person. The everyday person didn't even know the agenda of the religious person. We know clearly that the, the culture of the world is in conflict with the kingdom of God, but oftentimes even in religious circles we have to, we have to lean into um, our relationship with God, not just assume it, that you're going to get it from somebody else, and so that, that we would make those decisions. Thirdly, that Jesus challenges the logic of his culture, um, which is a contradiction unto itself, and I, I say why, and are we discerning our own culture's contradictions? I would, just, I would just encourage you, I know this is a lot, but I would encourage you to be engaged, engaged not, not in a policing kind of way, but over your own heart, over your own heart, 
that over this time you would consider the things that come into the eye gate and the ear gate, the things that we watch and go, what philosophy is driving this? And how is it, how is it either building up my soul or putting a tarnish on my soul? And then the last one, Jesus challenges the crowd to look deeper, at, um, at the crowd to take a, uh, Jesus challenges the crowd to look a deeper, a deeper, I added that, deeper than the surface. He calls them to judge with right judgment. What is the implications for us? Probably a whole nother week on that, but I would say that the implications for us to judge with right right judgment would be to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to allow us to see things through the lenses of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7 begins the, the, the breadcrumb of the introduction of the springs of living water, living water in the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is alive in you. Don't allow that to be dormant, but invite the Holy Spirit to help you see what you can't see on your own, to judge rightly, not just by appearances, but to judge with righteousness. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand together? Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that we could have the opportunity to walk through your scripture And Jesus, I pray that in just this last moment, we could have a holy moment with you as best as possible. Can I just encourage you? In fact, even if we can just dim the lights a little just to give us some some space alone, maybe. If I could just encourage you, I know a lot of words were said. I know in any time that we sit together to listen, there's all kinds of ideas firing in our mind. The most important part of any message, any time that we gather, is what do we do with what we've heard? And Holy Spirit, I ask you to highlight for us the truth of your word that you intend for us to receive as a deposit. Help us, Lord, to see and hear clearly. I just pray you would come now. Lord, encourage those that need to be encouraged. Strengthen those that need to be strengthened. Convict us where we need conviction, but come and fill us. We're going to just sing this last song, and and as we do, just spend a little time with Jesus, and then I'll dismiss you.
Lord, I thank you, God, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, nothing that can come against us. Lord, we, we pray now, Father, for your word to dwell richly in our hearts. Lord, let it be like good seed planted in soil that's ready to receive it. Lord, let it, let it multiply throughout the week. Bless your people, God. Strengthen them in every way. Give them hope. Give them encouragement today, I pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.